0: Hello and welcome to Quilt Achieviot's Markets Uncut Podcast, your weekly insight into the topics and issues that we've been discussing here at Quilt Achieviot. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you are listening on or by following hashtag QCWeeklyComment on LinkedIn. I'm Jack Bishop, Investment Manager based out of our Manchester office and this week I'm delighted to be joined by regular commentator and Head of Fixed Interest Research, Richard Carter, Alongside our consumer discretionary analyst, Mampsa Vileccia, a very good morning to you both. So, as we're recording this, it's been quite an eventful morning at Downing Street with David Cameron making a surprise comeback as Foreign Secretary. However, turn our attention back to financial markets. Following the recent rate decisions from major central banks, both equity and bond markets have had a good run. And it seems the market believes that we are now at peak rates. So, just last week, the US market posted an eight-day positive run, bringing the market firmly out of uh, correction territory, which is defined as a 10% fall from its recent high. And despite a sell-off on Thursday, Friday saw another strong session, so more than recouping the losses experience on the prior day. So, Richard, turning to you, we haven't been able to say this too often, um, but it has been a good week for Gilts uh, last week. Following the recent rate decisions, most major central banks have been talking at an IMF conference, and comments from the Bank of England's chief economist, Hugh Pill, were taken to be quite dovish. Um, It suggested that market expectations for interest rate cuts to begin next summer were not unreasonable. That forced the governor, uh, Andrew Bailey, uh, to try and row back on those and maintain that hawkish rhetoric on inflation. So what do you make of of those comments? And and following the recent GDP forecast for the UK uh, for 2024, and those figures released just on Friday to show the economy was flat in Q3. Do you think the market is right in pricing in interest rate cuts?
1: Yeah, good question, Jack. I mean, I think I think big picture, you know, um, we should we were you know increasingly confident that uh, the Bank of England has finished raising rates. That's the first thing we should say. So, you know, the backdrop for for gilts, as you said, has definitely improved. Um, I'm not surprised that the market is pricing in rate cuts at some point next year. There's, there's no doubt that the uh, UK economy has uh, slowed down a bit. You know, GDP is flat, as you said. Housing market's under a bit of pressure. Inflation's on its way down. So I'm not surprised that people are talking about cuts. And um, I think sometimes people read a lot into these. Uh, comments from central bankers. You know, they get asked questions in in conferences and various different things. And I think people sometimes overinterpret um, exactly what they've, they they've said. And they're basically just, you know, I think Hugh Pill just sort of acknowledging what the market was was discounting. And I do I do think um, you know we we should hope that the next move from the Bank of England is a rate cut. But I still think it's some way off. Um, I think it's uh, at least six months away before we're going to get to that sort of stage. And, um, uh, and you know, there's, there's plenty of concern about, you know, sticky inflation and all the rest of it and resilient economies as well to get through first. But um, I think for bonds, big picture, as you say, uh, the, the situation certainly improved with, uh, you know, central banks nearing, nearing the end of the job.
0: And also speaking at the conference was the head of the US Central Bank, Jay Powell, um, wasn't best pleased with the interruption from some climate protesters. However, it wasn't those words um, that the market focused on. He warned about being misled by good news on inflation and commented that they are still a fair way away from their 2% target. And then this did coincide on the same day with a rather poor Treasury auction in the US for 30-year bonds. Um, do you think, uh, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that, first of all? And I did spot that at the same time, there was um, a ransomware attack on China's largest bank, which prevented some US Treasury trades from being settled. So do you think those two things are interlinked? Or do you think it was a reflection of, of weak demand for that auction?
1: Yeah, it's hard to tell. I don't expect the ICB, ICBC thing did have a, a, a bit of an impact, but there's no doubt that uh, you know we've had a bit of a rally in the in the treasury market last sort of week or so, uh, and um, you know the demand for the auction was was pretty bad to be quite honest. On some metrics, it was the worst in a uh, in a decade, and it kind of added to the you know it sort of played into those fears about higher for longer and uh high levels of government bond issuance in the u.s and the deficit and all all the rest of it so um there was a few sort of issues coming together and we've also had on uh friday moody's downgrading the outlook for the u.s credit rating so you could sort of wrap it up in 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 the same same thing but um i don't think we should get too concerned about it and as you've got um you know treasury yields at five percent i think uh Ultimately, you will find a buyer. You know, even if yours pick up have to go up a little bit higher, I still think you'll find buyers. Especially if the um, if the U.S. economy does slow down a little bit. I mean, I think you know, going back to Jay Powell. I mean, again, you know, people like to read a lot into these these comments from central bankers. They the the Fed does not want to see financial conditions ease too much. You know, they're still on the sort of more hawkish side. You know, it's, it's they're slight, they've got a slightly different issue than the Bank of England, where you know the U.S. economy is still pretty strong, actually, compared to the U.K. Um, they don't want people to get too ahead of themselves in terms of pricing and rate cuts. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not surprised to see J Powell sounding hawkish. But again, you know, like I said before, you know, big picture, central banks are nearly there. We hope, um, and um, you know, as I said, that's pretty good for bond markets. That's great, Richard. And then finally, turning back to politics. So next year,
0: we'll see around 2 billion people vote in general elections. And we're probably one year away from the UK election, which is expected to be in November next year, but not not set in stone. And we're actually under now one year away from the US election. So it's a known issue that Biden isn't polling particularly well. And recent polling suggested that he's trailing Trump in five out of the six key swing states that are likely to decide the outcome of the election. With the rest of the map, I think you can pretty much paint in if it will be blue or red already. However, last week, we did see some big victories for Democrats. Um, Kentucky in the governor election, uh, which is staunchly a Republican state, and then amendments passed to the Constitution in Ohio with regards to abortion following the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And that, again, was a state that Trump won in 2020. So um, what might all of that mean for the race in 2024 between Biden and Trump? I saw as well that Senator Manchin of West Virginia, he's confirming he's not seeking re-election in 2024 and he's traditionally been the kingmaker for passing a lot of Biden's uh, agenda in the Senate. So how do you think that changes things?
1: Well, for me personally, it's very hard to believe that it it will be Biden Trump, and it is. Uh, I think it's slightly depressing in some ways. Obviously, Trump's got his legal problems, which are well known about, and Biden. Um, how do we put this politely? Is that uh, yeah, it's it's quite a, a senior candidate to to, uh, to to be going for the presidency again, which is obviously extremely demanding. Uh, job. so um, you know part part of me does think would it really be Biden versus Trump uh, next year, but all the indications are at the moment it will be it 's interesting that you know there 's often chat about a third candidate an independent candidate in these elections, and usually um, they don 't seem to uh, get far enough to actually um, go for the, go you know go for it on the on the election day, but uh, maybe this time will be different, and that could really changed the um calculus in terms of who's going to win but um i still think a long way to go into you know before we settle on the actual candidates and there's a lot of uncertainty uncertainty about what's going to happen on that front but i think it's also going to be interesting to watch the economy and inflation because you know biden very unpopular at the moment um, obviously the e- economy you know people's jobs inflation big political issue um that won't be any different one year from now and if if the economy is slowing down Um, that wouldn't be so good news, uh, wouldn't be good news for Biden. But on the other hand, inflation might come down as well. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. But um, yeah, big picture for me, I think quite depressing that these are the two best candidates the United States is going to come up with. But uh, we shall have to see if that changes next year. We will indeed. Thank you for that, Richard.
0: Uh, Let's hope the good news continues for bond markets going forward. Uh, Mamta, if I could bring you in here. Uh, Firstly, thanks for joining us. Um, A theme that we saw play out during the first half of this year was a very strong start to the year for luxury goods companies, so uh, the likes of LVMH, who own Louis Vuitton and Dior, and then Richemont, so that's Cartier, Van Cleef, and then Over the last few months, what we've seen is a reversal of that and their results haven't been taken too well by the market. So I think originally the thesis was that um, their end consumer was probably a bit more immune from the cost of living inflation issues and China's reopening would drive growth. So what's changed in the last kind of few months?
2: Yes. Hi, Jack. Um, So let's just take a step back for a moment. Um, COVID-19 reminded us of how fragile life is, and many concluded that it was better to enjoy life than to die rich. And this YOLO attitude, so YOLO which stands for you live only once, led to a huge resurgence in spend once restrictions were eased, especially in the Western economies. And as a result, last year luxury companies saw above average spend, particularly by American tourists in Europe. So beyond the Yola attitude, spend um, was being supported by high levels of savings over lockdown, government stimulus, and the strong dollar also helped. Now, of course, as you mentioned, at the start of this year, we did expect um, consumers to sober up, but for that demand to be offset by China, who were just coming out of tight restrictions. However, China's recovery is taking longer and slower than most had expected. Some of it, it is due to practical issues such as visa backlogs or not enough flight capacity. But they're also behaving more sober than the Americans and Europeans did when they came out of lockdown. But one important point to note is that the above average growth was being led by the aspirational consumer. So those who are new to the luxury world. However, the affluent consumer is still wealthy, and historically, they have driven, so the top 2% of um, the affluent consumer have driven 40% of growth for these luxury brands. So the industry is no doubt going through a period of normalization. This may take a few quarters to play out. However, the structural attractiveness of the industry, especially in the long term, still remains.
0: That's great. And then if we were to contrast those results of, of the luxury companies with the likes of Next and M&S here in the UK, who have recently reported quite strong results during the latest reporting season. So what do you think explains that difference in fortunes between the luxury goods companies and your average UK retailer in the kind of the near term?
2: So I would say that these two are very different markets and comparing the two is like comparing apples with oranges. But to answer your question, I think a big reason for the polarizing performance has actually simply been down to expectations. So for the past few years, um, luxury has been a momentum play with companies delivering one beat after another. And as a result, expectations by investors were set very high for these companies to continuously deliver double digit organic growth. Meanwhile, in the UK, um, consumer sentiment had been quite weak. Um, This has been weak for a while, maybe a bit too pessimistic. So in contrast, expectations were quite low. So just to add some context, if you take LVMH, for example, despite the normalization, at least for the first half of this year, they delivered organic sales growth of 20%. And that was still not enough, versus Next delivering 5% growth, which led to a positive share price reaction on that day. But we also need to bear in mind that luxury companies are global in nature, and are exposed to various nationalities, macro conditions, and also FX, versus Next and MS, um, which are predominantly UK high street companies.
0: Okay, and then recent data, you, you alluded to it there in terms of the consumer sentiment slowing. Um, so consumer spending in October slowed down as consumers begin to budget ahead of Christmas, higher energy bills, and uh, credit card spending as well grew just 2.6% year on year which indicates a decline in real terms. And then I also alluded to it earlier on, the UK GDP figures released on Friday, which showed the economy stagnating in Q3 as those higher borrowing costs start to bite. So um, what could this mean going forward for the sector, Um, both the luxury sector, I guess, and probably those more UK-centric names, uh, given how important consumption is um, as a component of GDP?
2: Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, non-food spend is under the most pressure, especially durable household goods such as furniture and also DIY, home improvement. But we also had a warmer than average October, which led to clothing spend on warmer items being deferred. And there's also a chance that consumers are waiting for Black Friday discounting to do their shopping. Um, but if you look at which age group is under the most pressure, we see that consumers within the 25 to 40 age bracket Are bearing the brunt of the cost of living crisis with the biggest declines in real income and also the lowest savings to absorb um, these shocks. Whereas young consumers, uh, while they also have low savings, um, minimum wage increases mean wages have actually outstripped inflation. Additionally, um, over 50% of those who are 25 years old and under are still living with parents and therefore are relatively shielded from many aspects of inflation. At the other end, older consumers have also seen higher pay rises, but have significantly larger saving levels and therefore seem to be better off. But looking ahead, um, as discretionary income continues to get squeezed, particularly the middle income bracket and the lower end, um, we would prefer to invest in companies that have highly desirable brands, such as the sporting goods companies, leisure goods companies as well, given consumer preferences for experiences versus material goods, or companies with great turnaround stories or those with standout and more resilient business models.
0: That's great, Manta. Thank you very much. And thank you to Richard um, for both of your insights and to all of you for listening. Did you enjoy our discussion on the podcast today? We'd love to hear from our listeners. So please review the show now, wherever you're listening and share it on your socials and tag us at Quilt Achieviet. to make sure you don't miss a future episode, tap the subscribe button and we'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can head over to our website, Com where you can read the accompanying market overview as well as subscribe to our weekly comment newsletter You can also stay up to date with our thoughts on market news, industry insights, and our upcoming events and webinars on our website and on our social media pages. Finally, if you have any questions you'd like to ask one of our experts for our next podcast, simply ask them via the weekly comments page on our website. We would love to hear from you. And that's it for today. So thank you again to Richard Amanta for your time and to all of you for listening. See you next time.